Well, this morning I invite you to take one last look at a character that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. Uh, What, five weeks ago I introduced uh, John the Baptizer, and I probably should say John the Baptizer because uh, those of us who are Baptists like to lay claim to him exclusively uh, as being John the Baptist. Uh, I introduced him as as he was introduced in Matthew uh, chapter 11 by Jesus using a very interesting turn of words. He called him the greatest. In John 11, verse 11, he said, no one greater is born of woman than John the baptizer. Now, I have a, I have a confession to make. The closer I have looked at John, uh, the, 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 the more I was impressed. I mean, the role that he plays in the Bible is enough. For, in fact, he is a one-man bridge between the Old and the New Testament. If you have your Bibles, you might not only have your finger in the Gospel of Luke here, but if you turn to Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, and in Malachi chapter 4, there you'll find that the very last chapter of the Old Testament begins with four words that echo their way through the whole Old Testament. And the words are these, Surely the day is coming. Surely the day is coming. And for several thousand years, the prophets of God had been been sounding out this uh, this promise. God is coming. God is coming. God is coming. And surely the day is coming. And and, and that's the promise broadcast in this very last chapter of, of the Old Testament. And it is sealed then with the very last verse of the very last chapter of the Old Testament. You'll see that there in Malachi. It says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day when the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And as far as the Bible goes, at the close of that verse, then God goes silent and goes silent for several hundred years while the world waits. And I suppose it's no mistake, then, that in the very first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we find the angel Gabriel then breaks the silence with a very familiar verse to a very old man, the priest Zechariah, standing at the altar of God. In verse 13 of chapter 1 of Luke, he says, Do not be afraid. Your wife will bear you a son and give him the name John. In verse 17, it says, He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of, uh, to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready the people to be prepared for the Lord. It is rightful that some have called John the last of the Old Testament prophets. And many, in many ways, he is just like them. The Old Testament prophets were God's select special forces, if you were, forces of nature, Courageous, undaunted, people of sturdy character and mighty words and towering giants able to stand alone like beacons of light blasting into the darkness. And they were bold enough to sound it out. God is coming. God is coming. God is coming. And in many ways, he is just like them, except he is the only one of them who is able to say, God is here. Maybe my imagination is getting away with me, but it takes quite a figure to bridge such a profound gap with one foot firmly planted in the Old Testament and the other one stepping out into the new. 
And that's the man that we've been looking at over these last few weeks. And last week, he proved his greatness by being the very one who would turn the world to Jesus Christ. In the simple words, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Very powerful stuff, and I really like this guy. In the study, as I've been studying, he has become my hero, a great soul. I want to grow up to be just like him. I really like this guy, and I do want to be just like him, or at least I did, until I saw what happened to him. And then I had to take a deeper look to really appreciate what God has in mind for anyone who would be so bold as to grow a great soul. Because, you see, not too long after John had turned the spotlight onto Jesus, he, he, he was swept from the stage and found himself caged in what I have in your outline as a, a moment of despair. In the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 3, verse 19, we read that when John rebuked Herod, the tetrarch, the king, because he had taken his brother's wife, Herodias, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added it all up and locked John up in prison. As history records it, this is his last stop. His only exit being a hideous execution by beheading. But we do get one final moment to actually hear from John. If you, if you have your Bibles, you heard it read, I want you to join me there, Luke chapter 7. And as you go to verse 18, I want you to get the picture of this setting. John is in prison, and his only contact with the outside world is through these furtive visits with his disciples. And the only news that they have in verse 17 is about Jesus, and in verse 16, how Jesus is now carrying the title of being the greatest prophet. It's evident that John's day is over. His his name is being forgotten. His movement is now finished. His followers, his friends, his disciples are nowhere to be seen except for these few who are sitting outside the prison wall just hoping to pass a few words with an inmate. Now, I want you to pause with me for just a moment because some of you know what that's like whenever life does pass you by. It's like you've been set aside. You've been left alone in your own cell. You're caged in isolation. And one thing's for sure, life is not working out the way you had expected it. The path you may have been on was a fast track, but for whatever reason, powers outside of your control have now left you incarcerated, living in a dead end. John the Baptist was at that point, and you've got to appreciate his agony. Listen to how William Barclay describes the, the, the scene. He said, for anyone, prison would have been a terrible fate. But for John the Baptist, it was worse than for most. He was the child of the desert. All of his life had been lived in wide open spaces, with the clean wind on his face and the spacious vault of the sky for his roof. But now he was confined within the four walls of an underground dungeon. And for a man like John, who had probably never lived in a house, this would have been pure agony. And you know what that's like. And if you do know that that's like, then you know what it does to you. I know what it does to me. It, it, it breaks me to be, be left alone and to the side. And so when I came to this passage, I was kind of hoping to find out how, as a man of God, a great soul, it could be different than, than what I may experience myself. 
And I was kind of hoping I would be able to look at a giant like John and discover some sort of trick on how to put a smile on my face in the face of agony. Uh, some insight that would grant me immunity from, 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 from human frailty, my very own. But instead, look at verse 18 and 19. We find something different. There we read, calling two of his disciples, he sent them to the Lord, to Jesus, to ask, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect another? <clears throat> now, I don't know about you, but, but that kind of shook me when I read it. I mean, I read those words and I realize that, that John is no longer standing tall like a giant. Gone are the bold tones, that raw sense of certainty, that strength of conviction. Instead, there is an audible quiver in the voice. Are, 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 are you the one? Did I make a mistake? Should I have waited for another? Did God make a mistake? In his book, When God Whispers Your Name, Max Lucado writes that here, John is drowning in an unfamiliar sea of doubt. John had never known doubt. Hunger, yes. Loneliness, yes. But doubt, never. Only raw conviction, ruthless pronouncements, and the rugged truth. And until now, now, well, the sun is blocked. Now his courage wanes. Now the the clouds come, and now he faces death. As he faces death, he doesn't raise his fist in victory. He raises only a question. And his final act is not the proclamation of courage, but is a confession of confusion. Find out, he says, if I've sent people to the right Messiah. Find out if I've been right or if I have been duped. You know, John is really not that far from us, is not unlike us, unlike you and unlike me. I'm pretty confident to say that every one of us has felt the crushing weight of doubt at some point in time. It may be from a moment of pure disillusionment or maybe gone through a season of of disappointment. And like John, you find yourself captive to dark thoughts and may wonder to yourself, how how can God be in control of this? I've put my faith in him. Was I wrong? I've taken my stand with Jesus, and when I did, it seemed so right. But now I'm wondering, was it a mistake? And you've been faithful, and you've lined up your your life to God's will. But like John, you find yourself surrounded by cold, hard rocks of reality and walls, and you wonder, where is God now? You've done what you believe is right, only to find that it's not turning out the way you expect it. And like John, you wonder, is God anywhere near? In all of my years of ministry, there has never been a week when I haven't encountered someone who is struggling in the corner somewhere with an issue of doubt, disappointment, or even those especially, (laughs) among those especially, who do come to church. Sometimes their worship isn't always a strong voice of praise. Sometimes it's more of a desperate cry. I I believe Jesus helped my unbelief. That might be a hymn that we would sing. It may sound strange to say, but as I read this of John the Giant, I am actually relieved. Even the greatest have moments where they break. And maybe that is what really proves their greatness. Through his disciples, John turns his eyes toward Jesus to ask, are you the one who was to come, or should I expect someone else? That's the question in verse 20 that they carry to Jesus. 
And in verse 20 and 21, the scene then changes. Act 2 to this drama. Verse 21, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases and sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. Jesus, the Son of God, is at work in this world. Verse 22, then notice the very first word of that verse. So, he replied to the messengers. Now, I want you to pause for a moment at that verse. Jesus had a message with John's name on it, but I love the way he gives it. The word that that Luke uses here to begin that verse is so huge. It's just two letters, so. And if you know your grammar, so is a conjunction that indicates the reason for the previous action. Something has happened so that something else can happen. So what? Well, when, when I first read verse 22, it hit me. Jesus really didn't answer their question as it was asked. Are you the one to come? Yes or no? Is there another? Yes or no? That's a theological question. And it deals with the dynamics of the Messiah. And my guess is that John or his disciples expected some sort of intellectual theological response. But Jesus knew better. And when he spoke, he was wise enough to act before he spoke and to go straight to the heart of the question with his actions. In verse 20, They ask a question, but instead of getting an answer, they are put on hold and then left to watch what's going on. And when Jesus then speaks in verse 22, he says, Now, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. (laughs) i got to tell you, I love it. Jesus welcomes the questions. He does not rebuke them for their questions. There's no rebuke, there's no lecture. Instead, he lets his actions do the talking for him. And the actions are an incredible display of grace and of healing and of the powerful presence of the Spirit of God. And in verse 22, Jesus then gives the disciples more than an answer. He gives them a mission. And it's a mission that can be gauged like this. You be the eyes and the ears for John. You tell him what you've seen of this Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. You tell him the story of the blind who have received their sight, the lame who are now walking, the lepers who are now clean, and the deaf who are now here, and the dead who are coming alive, and the poor who are finally hearing a message of good news. Tell him to hang in there. Tell him to take heart and encourage him with my blessing. That's my translation of the verse. Because that's exactly what's going on here. Verse 23, Blessed is the one, he says, who does not fall away on account of me. I love the way F.B. Meyer calls this the beatitude of the unoffended. (laughs) Those who do not abandon hope over the mysteries of God in his dealing with their life. And he says this, there is a unique blessing. Blessed are those who can live with their own unanswered questions, who are honest with God and rest in what they see and then wait patiently for God to reveal what they cannot see. Blessed are those who do not fall away on account of me. Now I've got to tell you, there is a divine genius here in Jesus' answer. You know as well as I do, there are deep moments in life where you, in fact, do not need a lecture. 
You don't need to be given another book on theology to be able to make sense of things going on in your life. You do not need more words of counsel and advice because words just simply fall flat. What you need is the simple assurance that God is alive and is active and has not abandoned planet Earth. For in that, you realize that God still cares and that grace still works and the broken still matter to him and that the power of his presence make all the difference in the changing of lives and that he is still the God of amazing love. (laughs) And that's a good beginning for anyone, certainly a good beginning for John. But then Jesus then has a little bit more. Look at verse 22. As John's messengers leave, Jesus then turned to the crowds and he told them what he thought of John. In verse 24, he says, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. Now, you can read his comments as a theological lecture on the dynamics of special revelation and the role of prophets and the nature of the human heart. That's how some commentators will take his words. But forgive me, I I see something much more gentle and something more personal happening here between Jesus and John. Actually, between Jesus and anyone's heart who is breaking in God's direction. From verse 24 to 35, Jesus tells us what he thinks of John. And I can't help but think that he... What he says echoes its way all the way back to John as part of the disciples' report and brought a full measure of healing to John. I mean, it's one thing to hear the first part of of Jesus' answer, God's alive and at work when planet Earth, lives are changed. There is comfort there, to be sure, but there may be the lingering question, that's nice, God may love the whole world that he gave his only begotten son, but I still wonder, where I am right now, does God love me? Does he even know who I am? He may love the whole world, but but does he even know my name? And if he does, do I matter to him still? What do I mean to him? And here Jesus tells us exactly what he thinks of John. In verse 24, he sorts through all of the images that are floating in the crowd. What did you expect out of John? And maybe it's the product of a hyperactive imagination, but I have this picture of the crowd listening in on the conversation between John's disciples and Jesus, and, and they're a little more stunned because they're, they're hearing the question. They're saying, John is asking, what? You've got to be kidding me. Man, the guy's lost it. I thought he was a giant. He was the one that turned me to Jesus. I would never imagine him broken. He used to be my hero, but now I don't know what to think about him. And I can get this picture of Jesus turning to the crowd, knowing what's on their heart as much as what is in John's heart. And then he speaks, what did you expect to see in the desert? In verse 26, what did you expect of a prophet, a spiritual giant? Are you surprised? Well, let me tell you what I know of that man. He is a genuine and faithful man, a man of integrity and is true to his calling. In verse 27, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you and will prepare your way before you. God has sent him as a messenger and he was faithful in delivering the goods. You want to know what I think of him, Jesus is saying? I'll tell you, verse 28, among those born of a woman, there is no one greater than John. I can guess that the, I can only guess at the impact of those words, the impact that they had on John as he sat in prison, and then he put together the pieces of the report, 
On one, Jesus, on one hand, Jesus had given him enough example and enough evidence for him to be able to say, okay, okay, I believe in him. But with these words, Jesus has given him something more. With these words, he has given Jesus, uh, John evidence to realize, not only do I believe in Jesus, but Jesus believes in me. Jesus believes in me. And do you, can you imagine how powerful that thought can be? Have you ever had anyone look at you in the eye and say, I am confident in you. I believe in you. Uh, have you ever had anyone look at you and say, I know what you're made of and I have no doubts about you. I am proud of you. You are great. I have to think those words came to John and gave him hope. And gave him comfort. And I also have to believe that Jesus intends those very words then to bring comfort to you. To you, to you, to you, to me. Because verse 28 does not end with John. When John spoke them, I have to believe that he has every single one of us in mind. That he had all of his children in mind. There is no one greater than John, yet I tell you that even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus is saying, I believe in you. I believe in you. I believe in you. Oh man, there is so much comfort in knowing what Jesus thinks of even the littlest one in his kingdom. There is so much comfort in knowing what Jesus thinks of you as you see yourself small as you are. You already know what you think of him, but in these words, it's as if Jesus is holding your picture in his hand and is breathing confidence into your soul, giving you a place in his heart, and it's a very powerful thing. (laughs) Some time ago, I was reading Philip Yancey's book, Disappointment with God. Have any of you ever come across that book? In it, he shared a very personal testimony of such a powerful moment as that. Listen to what he writes. He said, One holiday I was visiting my mother. Inevitably, the large box of old photos came down from the closet shelf. (laughs) Among those photos, I found one of an infant with my name written on the back. I looked like any baby, fat-cheeked, half-bald, with a wild, unfocused look in my eyes. (laughs) But the photo was crumpled and mangled, as if one of those childhood pets had gotten a hold of it. I asked my mother why she had hung on to such an abused photo when she had so many other undamaged ones. When I was 10 months old, my father contracted spinal lumbar polio. He he died three months later, just after my first birthday. My father was totally paralyzed at age 24, his muscles so weakened that he had to live inside a large steel cylinder that did his breathing for him. He had a few visitors. People had as much hysteria. He had only a few visitors because people had as much hysteria about polio in 1950 as they do about AIDS today. The one visitor who came faithfully was my mother, who would sit at a certain place so he could see her in a mirror bolted to the side of the iron lung. And she had kept the photo as a memento because during my father's illness, it had been fastened to his iron lung. He had asked for pictures of her and of his two sons, and my mother had had to jam the pictures in between some metal knobs, thus crumpling the condition of that baby photo. 
I rarely saw my father after he entered the hospital since children were not allowed in the polio wards. Besides, I was so young that even if I had been allowed in, I would not be able now to retain those memories. And when my mother told me the story of the crumpled photo, I will confess I had a strange and powerful reaction. It seemed odd to imagine someone caring about me whom, in a sense, I had never met. During the last months of his life, my father had spent his waking hours staring at those three images of his family, my family, me. There was nothing else in his field of view. What did he do all day? Did he pray for us? Yes, surely. Did he love us? Absolutely. But how can a paralyzed person express his love, especially when his own children are banned from the room? I have often thought about that crumpled photo, for it is one of the few links connecting me to the stranger who was my father, a stranger who died a decade younger than I am now. Someone I have no memory of, no sensory knowledge of, spent all day Every day, thinking of me, devoting himself to me, loving me as well as he could. Perhaps in some mysterious way, he is doing so now in another dimension. And perhaps I will have time, much time, to renew a relationship that was cruelly ended just as it had begun. I mention this story, Yancey writes, because the emotions I felt when my mother showed me the crumpled photo were the very same emotions I felt in a college dorm room when I first believed in a God of love. Someone is there, I realized. Someone is watching my life as it unfolds on this planet.